You know, when people are asked about what their biggest fear is, a lot of the answers are what you'd expect. Fear of heights, fear of spiders, and so forth. Humans are afraid of a lot of things. But when people are asked what their single biggest fear is, the big one that usually comes out as number one is fear of public speaking. For a lot of people, it even ranks higher than their fear of death. When Jerry Seinfeld heard about that, he correctly observed that that means if that person is at a funeral, they'd rather be the dead person in the casket than the one giving the eulogy. But there are some situations where we have to speak in public, and one of those is in a courtroom. For me, that would be the worst place to be nervous about speaking. When I'm in an uncomfortable situation, I'll usually try to use humor to sort of ease the tension. But when you're on the witness stand answering questions with a judge and a whole room full of people watching you, that's not really the time for a stand-up routine. My guest today is Collier, and he knows all about that situation. He was only 12 years old when he had to testify at a murder trial to talk about what happened at his house one night. And the person he was testifying against was his own father. Real people in unreal situations. There is a girl hanging by her broken leg from the telephone wire. And I called 911 and I said, I found a baby. I turned around. I see a gun pointed at me close enough I could touch it. She would hold our heads underwater all the time. He levels the gun, pulls the trigger, and I go down. Her eyes were full of tears. She didn't want to leave us. My hair catches on fire. I swear to God, this is this image is burning my head for the rest of my life. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Hey, it's Scott, and guess what? You're about to hear an ad, and that's both good and bad. It's good because ads are what make it possible for me to keep bringing you these episodes, and it's bad because, well, maybe you don't like listening to ads, and I get that. And the good news is, you don't have to. When you sign up to support the show, you get every single episode without any ads. Plus, you get all the bonus episodes. Yeah, did you know there are actually bonus episodes? And you can try it all for free just to see what it's like. If you're on an iPhone, just go to the What Was That Like podcast and at the top, click on Try Free and you're in. On Android, just go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus and try it out completely free. Once you've had the ad-free experience, you'll see why hundreds of other listeners are already doing it. But for now, here's another ad and then on with today's episode. I'll confess, sometimes I let my podcast playlist get out of hand and I get way behind, but there's one show that I subscribe to and any new episode goes right to the top of the queue. That's the Jordan Harbinger show. That's because I never have to figure out, okay, is this one going to be interesting or do I wait for the next one like I do for some shows? Because Jordan's conversations are always a must listen for me. He talks to fascinating people from any category you can think of. Authors, scientists, athletes, you name it. 
He's talked to undercover cops who posed as mafia and the actual career mafia hitmen. And the stories he gets out of these people, just incredible. In one episode, he talked to Paul Holes. You might know that name if you're into true crime. He's the former investigator who uses really advanced methods to solve cold cases, including the Golden State Killer. And another one I really enjoyed was with Sam Harris, an author and neuroscientist who promotes skepticism, and he doesn't mind taking on some seriously controversial topics like politics or religion. That one's going to make you think. Whenever a new episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show pops up, I already know it's going to be an episode that I'll enjoy listening to, and I'll bet you will too. For some episode recommendations, check out jordanharbinger.com start, or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is kind of a sad question to ask. How old were you when you last saw your mother? Uh, well, I was 11 years old, and it was the night of December 30th, 1989. A night you'll never forget, for sure. That was definitely a night I'll never forget, yeah. How would you, before we get into what happened that night, can you just describe your mother and maybe the relationship that you had with her? Yeah, my mother was like my constant companion in my life. I mean, obviously I was a child, so you have to have a parental figure around. But my mother was a wonderful woman who taught me, you know, unbeknownst to me, but but now, you know, all the values that I hold, you know, that I hold dear in my life. But also she taught me a lot about being resilient. She taught me a lot about being truthful and honest and and standing up for what's right. I didn't know at the time that all that was was what was happening, <laughs> you know what I mean? And it, it 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 sort of all came into play and unfolded very shortly thereafter I last saw her. But she was a wonderful woman. She was very kind and caring and, and wickedly intelligent and, and very sharp and quick-witted and and it, it, she was a joy for everyone to be around, which is why her murder impacted so many people was because they had not only was it a horrific thing, but they had they were grieving the loss of someone that they really appreciated having around in their lives. Your childhood life at that time, it was you, your mother, and you also had an adopted sister. Yeah. So about six months before my mother's murder, she adopted or my parents adopted a, a child from Taiwan who was almost three years old. So I had a three-year-old adopted sister. And that kind of complicated things, I suppose. <laughs> complicated things for your dad, anyway. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, uh, and, and for her, I, I get, not complicated things. I think that's the wrong way to say it. I mean, as well, I don't know if I should say it now or we as we get into it, but, you know, I believe that she was in the room when my mother was murdered. Yeah, we definitely want to talk about that. But you, so your family, you lived in a small town in Ohio and your dad was a doctor. Yeah. So my entire family was from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I grew up the first five years of my life in Virginia. And then when I was five, we moved to this small town, Ohio, called Mansfield. So I had grown up on a naval base because my father was in the Navy and he was a doctor in the Navy. And so he 
was recruited to come and uh, run a hospital in Mansfield, Ohio. So we moved to this small town where we didn't know anybody. It was a very, obviously, an, an odd sort of situation because, you know, we were from the East Coast and then going to the Midwest into a place where you don't know anybody and it's very small, small town. There's not, you know, it's not the most cosmopolitan place. And I remember my mother would kvetch a lot about that. But we embraced the community, the community, or rather the community embraced us. And I had what I thought was a normal childhood growing up. All that was sort of going on around me in my household, I just kind of thought that's how people <laughs> that's how people grew up, right? Right. It was your normal. But now you've mentioned that he had a bad temper. Your dad yeah. had a bad temper. Was he ever physically violent with you? Yeah, he was. He was. He would he he would, you know, strike me, he would hit me with belts and, you know, shit. And, you know, he was violent towards my mother, but he wasn't that much of a, like, a, he wasn't like a, a domestic abuser in that way. Like every day or anything, it was nothing like that. He would just, he was a rageaholic and he would just go off. But he was, I, I say that the, probably the, the more than the physical abuse was the, was the verbal abuse that would be all the time. You know, he would just go into a rage, you know? And when you grow up like that, as many people, you know, I'm not alone in this. As many people that deal deal with like domestic violence issues or, you know, uh, aggressive parents or or grow up, you know, you it's like fight, flight, or fawn. And you learn to like appease the parent, like, okay, don't set daddy off, don't don't do this, like, watch out for your father, don't don't. That that's how I grew up, but that's not unfamiliar to many many children that grow up in households, you know. Right. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people can identify with that. Absolutely. He often slept downstairs on the couch. Did you know why that was at the time? The the sleeping on the couch thing was always something that I was under the impression of. He was doing it because he would he was working late, so he would come in late. His pager would go off. He would have to leave in the middle of the night or very early in the morning. So that's why I knew that was my understanding when my father was sleeping on the couch. He was a doctor. He was on call a lot. So he was in demand, if you will. And so I was always under the impression that, okay, he just, that's why he did, you know, I had no, I had no real dynamic or or understanding of what the dynamic was between my parents. I think that's pretty common for most kids. Like, you know what I mean? I knew my, like, don't piss my dad off. Don't do anything. But I had no idea of what I would end up finding out was the truth in their relationship the deal they sort of had. And even with the insight that you had into his character, as you later testified, you still didn't quite have the full picture. I mean, you were a kid, you're 11 years old. Oh yeah. I mean, I don't think I ever had the full picture. I still don't probably have the full picture. Honestly, I'm still discovering things because, you know, it's been this sort of mystery that I've been unpacking for decades, really to sort of figure out what the history is in the, in the family and who my father was understanding like where I come from, all of it. It's very, it's very challenging. And I think that, you know, again, I'm not alone in this. (laughs) There are many people that try to unpack their childhood. You know, there are not many people who went through what I went through to such extremes, but there are, you know, it's, it's far more common than, than not that children go through this. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's true. Yeah. So, so the real reason he was downstairs most of the time was because he was coming home from seeing one of his girlfriends. Yeah. So I had, 
you know, I didn't know this again at the time, but yeah, my father was having many extramarital affairs. And that was something that I ended up finding out had been before my parents even got married. He was a, he was a, a womanizer and carried on many of these relationships outside the marriage and sometimes multiple relationships outside the marriage. You know, he would have a girlfriend, then he would have another, like, one on the side, and then he was married. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, and, I, and for the longest time, I just did not understand. Like, I just couldn't figure out, like, how was he able to do all this? <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, having a career as a doctor is stressful enough, but, and, and a family and, and everything else. But then to have this whole other social lifestyle, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. And I don't, you know, I don't think it was, uh, you know, romantic vacations and things like that. There, that wasn't something that was going on. But I think that, you know, I think with anyone who's leading like a double life, they like sneak it in when they can. And then that's what that relationship becomes, right? I think that's one of the more fascinating things when you think about someone like my father is that how he was able to sort of make all this happen within a within the confines of his work experience, his work life, his family life, which wasn't, we weren't like the family was together all the time. I was most of the time with my mother and my father was always, he would sometimes show up at school events and then he would be like called away. And my mother would say things apparently to, to her friends at the time, be like, Oh yeah, he's got to go see one of his girlfriends, you know? So everyone was aware of this around me, except for me, obviously. The night of December 30th, 1989, can you go through what happened that night? So what had happened is, is that, you know, it was right after, you know, the Christmas holiday and my grandmother, who was my father's mother, who was extremely close with my mother, she was supposed to come stay with us for Christmas. And she didn't, and I can't remember it was that she had like pneumonia because she would get pneumonia a lot or she had like a, a hip you know, injury or something. I can't, I can't really remember why she didn't come for Christmas because at that time in late 1989, my parents were in the middle of a divorce. My mother had filed for divorce a couple of months earlier. And before that they were separated. The cat was out of the bag. because my father had introduced me to his girlfriend and all this stuff. And you know, the, the shit really hit the fan, if you will. So she didn't come for Christmas. It was sort of a weird Christmas, obviously, because my, my father, like, uh, you know, everything, like I said, the cat's out of the bag, right? And I had this adopted sister, you know, from, from Taiwan who had, who had, you know, arrived with us during the summer. My father comes that night because my mother had made dinner and he arrives very late with my grandmother. I mean, not very late, but, you know, like seven, eight o'clock, something like that, six, seven o'clock, something like that. You know, this is winter time. And he shows up with my grandmother who's going to stay with us for the New Year's holiday. And, and this was his mother. His mother, yes. And again, she was very close with my mother because she has a daughter, but she wasn't close with that daughter necessarily. And my mother was very like cosmopolitan and very much loved fashion and all these things. So they were both very into shopping and fashion and all these fun things and, and, and cultural stuff. And so they had this really strong bond. And I loved my grandmother. I loved seeing my my grandmother. She was a little Italian lady, and and she was she was great. And she was probably my honestly, her and my father's mother were my my two favorite grandparents. But but she was also at that time my last remaining grandparent. 
and she came and we had dinner and, and I think my father then left, you know, just basically dropped her off and then left to go do whatever he was going to go do. Right. I sat there and I think I showed her, you know, my, my, my grandmother, my Christmas presents and, you know, shared, uh, you know, I had gotten a Nintendo that year. So I'm sure I played some Nintendo and <laughs> did all that, you know, as you do. And, and she spent time with my, you know, my sister and my mother and I in the living room. And then it was time for me to go to bed and I gave her a hug and a kiss and I gave my mom a hug and a kiss and said, I love you, mommy. And, uh, that's the last time I saw my mother. And your dad was not at home at that point. No, he wasn't. No, he was gone. Because for the leading up for that first, you know, that six months before that, at least, you know, because after my father had introduced me to his girlfriend, which was in you know, on Father's Day that year, he wasn't around very much anymore. He already wasn't around a lot, but he was really like persona non grata in the house, obviously, because unbeknownst to me, even though I told my father about the girlfriend, my mother had known about the girlfriend for my mother had known about all the girlfriends, apparently. I never knew this, of course, because my mother, you know, obviously never alerted me to that. But also, that was their deal in their marriage was, you know, you can go do whatever you want, Jack. My father's name is John, but he went by Jack. Do whatever you want, Jack, but don't drag our son into it, which makes total sense. You know what I mean? So, I was I was protected by my mother and I was protected by that sort of that agreement they had. And then when my father introduced me to his girlfriend, Sherry Campbell, that was when all the shit hit the fan. Flash forward six months, things are very have been very tenuous in the household for many months now. My father really isn't around. He's making himself very scarce, you know, other than like I would spend time with him individually separate from my mother, and I we would randomly run into his girlfriend at at Kmart or wherever, like, oh, look who's here. It's Sherry, which I actually said on the witness stand. Look who's here. It's Sherry. All these, oh, random you know, circumstances of just bumping into her. And, you know, and during that time, too, leading up to all this, my father was telling me, like, what a wonderful life he was creating with Sherry and her children and how wonderful they are and how uh, that's going to be his new family. And he's going to make sure that my mother and I are, are living poor and even, you know, can't even afford McDonald's and I'm going to go to public school and, and lead this horrible life, never go to college. And he's going to make sure he ruins my life because now he's angry because my mother had filed for divorce, which is apparently not his fault. It's, it's her fault, my fault, everyone else's fault. It's never his fault. Yeah. Never his fault. No. So he wasn't home. You went to bed. I went to bed. I woke up at about like three fifteen in the morning. And I'm pretty sure it was a scream from my sister because I was, a, I was a, like, I always used to sleep like a log, man. I was just out. And I then heard these two loud thuds that were separated about a minute apart. It sounded like a body hitting a wall. I mean, it was really loud. I was terrified. And I can hear between those thuds, my, my father, muttering because I knew what his voice sounded like and it was very slow and and I was terrified and I'm thinking to myself like what do I do do I get up do I like obviously something bad is going on all that could flash back in my head was a conversation that I'd had with my mother probably two months prior right around like I guess Thanksgiving 
And she had said to me, she was really downtrodden and just, you know, my father was just, my father was an asshole. You know, they're in the midst of this divorce. And she said to me, Collier, if anything ever happens to me, uh, you know, I want you to know that I would never leave you. I was like, okay, mommy. Yeah, of course. And she said, if anything ever happens to me, your father probably had me killed. And I never forgot that. You know, when my mom told me that, I guess in a lot of ways, I thought she was being very hyperbolic, you know, because she was going through a really tough time. Obviously, divorce isn't easy on a woman. Yeah, but to hear your mom say something like that, I mean, that's got to be traumatizing in itself. Yeah, it was very jarring. I just thought, you know, okay, mommy's going through something, but I, I filed it in the back of my mind. And so that I'm hearing these noises, these thuds, and I'm starting to think, oh, oh my God, this is, this is really happening. But something's telling me not to like jump up, right? You know, just like stay in, like, because if that's what's going on, <laughs> then there, there's nothing I can do about it. Look, my father's, you know, almost 6'4" you know, 230, 40 pounds at that time. You know what I mean? And I'm a, I'm a 11 year old kid who's chubby and asthmatic. So I then hear that his, you know, these, I hear these footsteps come down the hall and I was, I had always slept with my door open. And I remember I can see out of the, my peripheral vision the footsteps stop in my doorway and I can see the feet in my doorway and I'm, and I'm literally pretending to be asleep and I can see my Batman clock on the wall. And this is three eighteen AM and I can see the out of the corner of my eye and something's telling me I'm like, you know, something's saying, don't look up. As I think about that. And every time I say that, I realize that if that, <laughs> if that didn't, if I was to look up, I wouldn't be here today. Because ultimately, as as we later find out, you know, it's nothing to make the hole a little bit bigger and say she left with her kid. And that's it. And you never heard from again. And I've never heard from again. Yeah. I somehow go, you know, the footsteps leave and I somehow go back to sleep for a few hours. And I wake up and, you know, it's obviously daytime and I run straight to my mother's room and I'm noticing that the bed is really disheveled and I'm looking for blood stains on the, on the bed. I'm not finding any. And my sister is asleep, but, you know, is laying in the bed and she's asleep. I go downstairs. My father is sitting on the couch and he has a towel wrapped around his waist. He had just gotten out of the shower. He's watching CNN. I said, where is my mother? And he doesn't say anything. And I said, where is my mother? And he looks at me and he goes, well, mommy took a little vacation, Collier. And right then I knew that he had done something to her. And I don't know if I was necessarily like, in, in my head was saying he, he he's murdered her, but he's done something to her and it's not good. I knew that, you know, sometimes I waver, you know, did I know he killed her? I mean, maybe in the back of my mind I did. But I also didn't want to let that on that I thought that. And I also just didn't want to think that either. Yeah, that's not something you want to believe actually happened. Yeah. It's really not something you want to believe actually happened. So, you know, I waver a lot on that, you know, what I was really feeling at that moment. But it was, 
it was my mother's gone and you're responsible for her being gone. And I'm going to figure this out. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash what and use code 25 what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what code 25 what. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV and her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com/what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com/what. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. Probably the easiest thing I've ever done. The medication comes in the mail and it's very easy to use. I've been able to live my normal lifestyle and I've lost 20 pounds already and I've never felt better. It changed my life. 
And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. My father then launches into this whole diatribe. You know, my, my grandmother comes in and he's basically explaining away and I had asked him about the thuds that I heard and you know he's telling me that my that they got into a fight where she came downstairs she started screaming at him she threw her purse and her credit cards at him left out of the back door of our house walked down the driveway in the middle of New Year's Eve in the dead of winter in Ohio it's freezing snow in the driveway and got into a car that was waiting at the end of the driveway. And he, he had gotten into this whole fight. He didn't have his glasses on. And then he ran to the table to put his glasses on and saw her get on a car and leave. And I just, I knew it was bullshit <laughs> when he was telling me that. Because I knew that, A, I didn't hear her saying anything. I knew that everything had happened upstairs and it didn't happen downstairs in the living room that he was claiming. He, you know, because how do footsteps go from the, how do I hear all these noises and footsteps are in my hall, come down the hallway if all this interaction happened downstairs. And where was your grandmother when that was happening? So we had a guest room that she was staying in, which was on the other side of the house. And the house wasn't that big, but she was in her room. Second floor or first floor? First floor. Yeah. First floor downstairs in the back corner of the house. Okay. So even though what his story claiming that it happened downstairs, she was far enough away that she may not have heard it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't know how you would have had it. It's not like we had a huge house. We had a smaller house. So I don't know how you wouldn't have heard it. But, you know, I think she was just as confused. You know, a lot of a lot of people ask me and they're like, oh, she must have known. I, I don't think she knew. And it's also her son and it's her firstborn. And as anyone knows, Italian mothers are very protective of their sons. And I think that, you know, she believed what he was saying. Even though she didn't believe him, she believed him. You know, so my father's telling this whole story, and then and then my father is saying to me, he launches this whole diatribe about how about what had happened, his story. I must have heard the purse. That's what that's what that sound was that was hitting the that I said was hitting the wall. And then he said, Okay, so we're not gonna call the police. We're not gonna call the FBI. When he said the FBI, I just remember thinking, like, bro, like what? Like the FBI? Like, why are we going there? Like that's a that's quite an escalation. <laughs> like the FBI, like we're not we're not to this. You know, I just thought that was really weird. He starts strategizing like where my mother could have gone, and but he's basically you know in a hurry to get out of the house, and so he's he's going to go deal with some stuff because he's moving his practice to Erie, Pennsylvania, and he's going to go see the girlfriend and all this. And I waited until he left, and my mother had just gotten a cordless phone. And, you know, my grandmother was like, okay, you're not, we're not going to call the police. You're going to listen to your father and yada, 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 right? You're going to obey your dad. And I went and I, I grabbed the cordless phone and I ran upstairs. And something that I had done prior to all this is I had made a list when my mother had told me this info about the, you know, if something ever happened to her, my father probably had her killed. I had made a list of all my mother's friends' phone numbers. And I put this little list inside a stuffed Garfield, a Santa Claus Garfield that I had. And I saved that. And 
I went and I grabbed that list and I locked myself in the bathroom with the cordless phone. I just started calling everybody on that list. That strikes me as really one of the most bizarre parts of the story. An 11 year old kid, you, you know, your mom tells you this, but then you take action and create this list of your mom's friends and their phone numbers. It's like, yeah. it's like your emergency kit. You know, that's your, that's your thing. Yeah. If something happens, you kick into action and start calling. But it's interesting you say that because, you know, I, and that might be weird to some people, and maybe it is an extraordinary thing to do. I don't think it's that uncommon. I think the kids that grow up in abusive homes or abusive situations, I think they do have lists like that. I think they do have call lists. I think they do know if shit really hits the fan, who am I going to call? You know, not Ghostbusters. I'm going to call these people, right? So I don't know if it's that uncommon. I mean, maybe maybe it is. I don't know. I've never discussed that with anyone. Is this uncommon or not? But I feel like, you know, kids are pretty sharp. Kids know what's going on. I think if if you're involved, you know, I was an only child for a long time. I had this relationship with my mother my whole life. And I think I was protective of her. And I think that, yeah, it was a preemptive sort of thing. Like if something happens, I'm going to be able to call these people. So, you know, I called everyone and I said, look, I can't call the police because my dad told me not to call the police, but you can call the police, (laughs) which of course they did. And I'm thinking also from their standpoint, getting a phone call like that from the little boy, the little son of their friend saying, I think my dad killed my mom. Of course, your mom probably told them the same thing. If anything ever happens to me. Yeah, I think that she, you know, especially with her friends, I think a lot of them had maybe possibly feared the worst because they they had all said to people, you know, in the newspapers and things like this woman wouldn't leave, just leave her kids. So you start going down this list and making phone calls. What came of that? My mother had a friend that lived over a couple of streets too. And she had always said, you know, if you guys ever need to come over here, here's the back door and that type of thing. I I called all these people and cops show up at the house. Like, I don't know, a few hours later, uniform officers. And my grandmother is like livid, you know, yelling at me. Oh, you called the police. You didn't obey your dad, yada, yada. I was like, I didn't call the police. Right. And the police could testify to that too. You didn't call them. It was, it was very true. I was like, I didn't call the police, so I wasn't lying, you know? What did they give for their reason for showing up? Because they had gotten a call from concerned people because my mother didn't show up for a lunch thing. She was supposed to see a friend. for. We were supposed to go see uh, my mom's best friend, Shelly, or another friend we were supposed to go see for like a New Year's Eve thing. So it was kind of like a, just they were doing a welfare check, sort of. Yeah, I guess it was sort of a welfare check, just kind of see what's going on. Again, this is, you know, a small town, Ohio. There's not much that goes on. So it's the holidays, but they came and, and there was two officers and my grandmother is like yelling at them and don't come in that, you know, house or whatever. And she's just living with me, looking at me like I've created this whole thing. We go upstairs to show them my mother's bedroom and I'm trying to like, I'm trying to talk to the officers, but my grandmother's literally hovering over me. And I, and I know that she doesn't want me to disobey. You know, I can't disobey my father. You know what I mean? So don't disobey your father, you know, be a good boy. So I was very much trying to present that to them. But at the same time, 
also trying to get them to, to believe me <laughs> that something has happened and it's not good. <laughs> I remember I pulled one of the officers aside into like my sister's bedroom, which was right next to my mother's. And I said, I don't trust my father as far as I could throw him. And that's something my mother used to say. So I borrowed her euphemism, if you will. But she, uh, you know, the officer was like, oh, okay. And I think he was just kind of a little dumbfounded, but they left. And later that night, my father came home and I think we all, again, he was talking about where possible places my mother could have gone. We were having like a brainstorming session. Then his divorce attorney came over. It was just weird. The next day, a detective shows up at the house. So this is New Year's Day. My father isn't there again. My father leaves very early in the morning. And this detective shows up and his name is David Messmore. And unbeknownst to me, because I had called my mother's friends again, like snuck the phone in and had tried to see like what's going on. They're like, well, we fired a, filed a missing persons, persons case. And I'm like, well, okay, she's not missing. <laughs> like something has happened to her. Like, you know, she's either dead or he's got her held somewhere or something, you know? And meanwhile, like while my father is gone too, before these detectives and police, I'm like looking around the house for like clues. I'm trying to figure out, I, I think I may go outside and I'm like looking around I'm trying to figure out what happened. You know, I'm in the basement looking around, snooping around. And even my grandmother was saying things like, why are you snooping around the house? And, you know, I'm trying to figure out like, oh, I think I have a toy down here and stuff like that. But this detective shows up at the house and my grandmother again is just, she's apoplectic. He, you know, charms his way in because I'm like, oh, come on in. And, <laughs> and she goes to go call my father. Uh, she's like, my son is going to sue you guys for coming here. This is harassment and yada, yada. And my, my grandmother leaves. And, and one of the things that my mother had always told me growing up as a child was uh, grab the brass ring in life. So I knew that that moment, because you know, like the carousel horses when you were younger, like my mother would always tell me stories of like, you, you, you go on the carousel horse and you grab the brass ring and you win a prize, right? And so I remember thinking that and I and my grandmother's off talking to the phone trying to get a hold of my father and I realized that was a brass ring moment I'm alone with this detective in my house and I said to him I said my mother would never leave me like something's happened to her give me your card I'm going to school tomorrow give me your card gives me his card <laughs> and my grandmother comes back and he's like looking around and 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 she's like, you know, you need to get out of here. And he's like, oh, okay. He was like asking a few questions. And she's like, no. He's like, well, when will the doctor be back? Because he wants to talk to my dad, right? And so, he, you know, when will, when will uh, the doctor be back? And she's like, he'll be back this evening. You can come talk to him then. And, and he's like, okay, okay. So he leaves. And that night, again, my father comes back home. But my my father's girlfriend also shows up with a roast. Uh, pork roast because it's you know New Year's Day, right? And uh, sauerkraut and the whole whatever traditional thing. And this woman is like, my mother was an amazing cook, but I just remember she's in my house with my grandmother. My dad's like, oh, look, Sherry came to bring us food because your mother and, and sort of the narrative that my father is using is that my mother had left us, left us. She made the choice to leave us, had abandoned the family. It was this sort of victim mentality thing with him of, you know, your mother made the choice to to leave us, left me high and dry with you kids. And I'm just thinking to myself, you're you're out of it, man. Like you you're responsible for her leaving us. But his mother was buying that whole story. Uh I mean, 
at least, at least to, to me, it was, she was buying that story, but I, I don't know if she ever really bought it. Do you know what I mean? I think that my grandmother was in a very difficult position. So again, that night, you know, uh, so the Sherry's there and then, then my father's divorce lawyer is over again. And then because Dave Messmore shows up at the house again and wants to question my father and the lawyer won't let him in and says, he's not going to talk to you. And he goes, okay, I just want to ask him a few questions and I can see Dave and I'm making eye contact with him at the door. And, you know, I'm just thinking to myself, I'm going to spill it all to you tomorrow, man. So the next day I get picked up for school because my mother would normally drive me to school, but uh, you know, family friend picks, picks me up to go to school. And the first thing I do is I, I go right into my principal's office and I give her that business card for Lieutenant Messmore. And I say, you need to call the Mansfield Police Department. I want to talk to this guy. And Lieutenant Messmore comes down to my school. And this is something that is so key to all of this because there are so many times, I think more often than not, right? In these types of cases where children are maybe witnesses or there's the opportunity to sort of get a handle on it for law enforcement of what the actual scope of what's going on. The fact that I was able to go to school and that I was able to be free of my grandmother and my father and, and all those external pressures and have a, pl- a safe, a safe place to talk to law enforcement was absolutely key in all of this. So Dave Massmore comes down to my school and I talked to him for probably like, I guess like two or three hours. And I lay out the entire like history of my family as I know it, my parents' marriage the girlfriend, how his history of abuse with us, his violent temper, everything that we had, that we, that I had experienced, everything that I knew of, that I learned from my mother. Because obviously growing up, I didn't know all these things about my father, but then as he introduces me to the girlfriend and there's this divorce and there's all these things happening, I'm starting to find out more and more from my mother and, and my father too of everything that was going on that that I sort of was uncovering this past that I didn't know existed. So I just give him the whole thing. And I say to him, look, I'm going to go home. And when my grandmother is downstairs dealing with my sister, I'm going to go upstairs and, you know, she's making dinner or whatever. I'm going to sneak around upstairs and I'm going to go to the crawl space and I'm going to pull the bookshelf out of the wall to look and see if I can find my mother's body. And then I'm going to like search around for other clues. I'm going to look to see if her purse is stashed somewhere because my father claims that she had thrown this purse at him. And I was like, I know that she would never leave the house without this purse with her stuff in it. And I was like looking for, I was just looking for clues. And I remember him just kind of, (laughs) kind of looking at me like, who is this kid? But I was full on into this detective mode. I'm going to find out what happened to my mother. Like my father's not going to get away with this. And I know it's like, you know, a a lot of people, many people cast doubt on my, (laughs) on what I did and how I was involved in all this. Cause, oh, a kid couldn't do that. It happened this way. Like (laughs) it has been well-documented in court. It has been well-documented with conversations with the investigator. Like this was, this became my mission. I went on this little crusade because I'm going to find out what happened to my mother. And every night my father is like, you know, he's, quote unquote, doing, you know, moving his practice to Erie or he's doing this. He would come home every night and my father would have this, uh, you know, we would have these like brainstorming sessions of where, oh, 
what, where could mommy have gone? And, and, you know, maybe she went to Toronto, Collier, because you guys always wanted to go to Toronto. Maybe she's shopping and she went to visit so and so. And just all this weirdness that I was just like, oh, yeah, sure, sure, dad. Okay. You know, I'm just, and all I can think of is like, I'm watching this man like a hawk. And I start to notice things like my father had always, my father always had very well manicured hands. My father always cuts and scratches on his hands. And I noticed that. And then one night he had come home and he, he asked me, he asked me to rub Ben Gay, which is like icy hot, like on his shoulders, like an ointment, because he was really sore from quote, moving boxes. And I was making, filing all these mental notes. And so every time I would go to school, I would literally go into the principal's office and either say, get Dave Massimore down here or let's call him at the police department. I would tell him what I learned that last night (laughs) because Every time my father would come home, I would be watching him like a hawk. Like that was my mission. Like screw homework, screw all this. My mission is to watch this man like a hawk and just make mental notes of what he's doing. And so every night he would be coming home and he would like the, his divorce attorney would come over. And they'd be having these little secret meetings in our dining room. And it was just weird. <laughs> it was, it was weird. And I started to notice this, this pattern of my father's behavior. And one of the things is, again, so my father, as I was saying, was very, it was, had a very violent temper, was very into like violent movies and things like that. My father would get angry and call me, you know, words he would call me like a little faggot or a pussy, or I wasn't man enough. My mother was turning me into a faggot and I was going to grow up and not be a man or whatever, all these just really hateful things growing up that he would, you know, he would verbally abuse me and even things as, you know, playing catch in the backyard, he would find ways to throw the ball at my, you know, at my crotch or at my head and tell me I was a wussy and, you know, all this stuff, all the things that abusive fathers do, right? And my father was very much into, my, my mother had gone to Taiwan to go meet my sister or meet the family and stuff in the, for the adoption process. And I was supposed to go with her, but I had ended up getting sick with asthma. So I had to stay here in the States. So she was gone for two weeks and I was with my father alone. My father terrorized me almost the entire time that she was gone. He would go on these rages and then he would apologize. And then it was like this Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Like that's how he always was. He would go in these massive rages and then he would apologize and be like, oh, you know, I don't mean it. I mean, the classic abuser thing, right? Oh, I didn't mean to do it. I mean, it's the same. It's it's a cycle of abuse, right? One of the things that my father would always do is he you know he would be he would watch like violent movies on television. I was always this little kid. I would cover my eyes. I know it sounds like stupid nowadays, but like I wasn't allowed to watch violent movies as a kid. Like my mom wouldn't let me do that. You know what I mean? Or like adult supervision. Like there would have to be like my mom was very old fashioned like that. So I would cover my eyes, and I didn't want to see anything bad, right? And my father would be yelling at me, like, take your eyes off, take your hands off over your eyes. You need to watch this. And my father always said these like Vietnam stories where he was like in Vietnam. And my father was a, you know, a, a, a malignant narcissist in a lot of ways. And I don't need to diagnose him, but you know, he clearly suffers from nar- uh, narcissistic personality disorder, but he would tell these massive lies about being a fighter pilot in, in Vietnam. And he would be, I remember one time and, and, you know, many years later, people confronted me like you know, they said hey you know i remember we had met with your we all got out to dinner and your father was telling the story of how he got shot down in his f14 tomcat over the south china sea and vietnam and his ejection seat wouldn't work 
his lever to eject the airplane. So the plane went down and then he cut himself out of the cockpit with his trusty boat, you know, government issued Bowie knife and then swam two miles to shore. Like just absolute like craziness. And my father wasn't even in Vietnam. <laughs> and my father, you know, too, with these girlfriends and things like my father would have these photos in his office of him as a decorated in his navy whites with all these medals and all these stripes and everything as if he was like, uh, uh, you know, he had more medals than like the members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And my father would go down to these, you know, unbeknownst to me, but I had gone to surplus stores with him and he would buy these fake medals to make himself out to be this, this Navy hero. So he would have all these photographs of him in this like naval uniform and, and be like he, uh, of all these accolades that he didn't have. And that was a sort of allure for the girlfriends. He was this decorated Navy guy. You know, Top Gun was a big movie that had come out in the late 80s. So he would ride that wave. And he was always telling me about his fighter pilot stories, which are all just bullshit. So all of this played in this very machismo character that my father had. So on the flip side, we're in here in, in January 1990. My mother is gone and I'm playing a video game and it's a violent, you know, it's, it's a, not a violent game, but it's like contrast. I mean, it's like shooting and there's like fighting, like double dragon. And my father sees me play this video game because I wouldn't have bought this video game for you if I know that it was, it was violent like this. And I'm literally looking at him going, who is this man? Like what? He, he totally had this flip. My father was in the absence of my mother had become a little more docile and, and sensitive and uh, just all this weird stuff that, that I'm, I'm like, this doesn't make any sense the way my father is. I'm telling all this to Dave Messmore. And I said, you know, his behavior is becoming so bizarre. And what happens is it's in the middle of January, 1990. So my mother had been missing for about two weeks now. My father says, Hey, will you, uh, I'm going to go to the office. Uh, come with me. I'm going to go paperwork from the office. And I was like, Yeah. And I'm like, Oh, yeah, I'm coming with you. So I can watch him. Right. We go to the office. He, he picks up some paperwork. And on the way back home, we stop at a gas station. And my father goes into the gas station and I can see him through the windshield. And I knew that this is like my moment. Right. Again, brass ring. And I start rummaging through his car and I open up, open up the, uh, in his truck and I open up the center console and I find two photographs. One is of a house that I've never seen before. And the second one is of his girlfriend, Sherry Campbell, and her two children sitting in front of a fireplace that's wrapped in plastic. And they were both Polaroids. And I remember saying to myself, these two are tied together. Like this is a new house and she's involved. And so the next day I go to school and I tell Dave Musmore about what I found. And that, I guess, opens up more doors to like, okay, (laughs) there's a house somewhere, right? You're kind of in a unique position here because David Messmore may not have had enough probable cause for a search warrant or anything, but you could certainly go rummaging around wherever you wanted and come up with stuff. Exactly. And I, and I, I didn't know that that was unique. I was just I was just on this mission, like, I'm going to find out what happened to my mother. Like, there was no like, oh, I'm going to be an investigator. Or I'm going to be this little sleuth. I, I, there, I wasn't thinking about any of that. I was just like, this is what I can do to help this situation. And I'm not, I'm going to make sure that this guy does not get away with whatever he's done, which is what I what I fear in my heart is the worst that he's murdered my mother, but at best he's done something to her. But and you but you were really driving this investigation though. It sounds like 
Yeah, and the thing is, is that like unbeknownst to me, but on the same side, Dave Messmore is investigating this, but his captain at the Mansfield Police Department is like, "You're not going after this man. He's a doctor. Like they can sue. You know, because obviously all the concerns of he's a doctor, he can sue us. You don't have any." information you don't have any probable cause and he's and he's just saying i've got this kid <laughs> this kid believes that he's done something to his mother the 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 police captain has basically threatened him in a way of like if you don't find anything man like we're you're, you're gonna be fired you're gonna be out of a job like we're gonna be you know the department's going down etc 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 right so i i find you know I, I tell him about these photographs and then i notice that my father's been, so this is like I said, mid January nineteen ninety, and I notice again my father is coming home every night, and he's meeting with his attorney, and I can tell and tell that he's becoming because he's not violent now, he's not angry, like he's not going into these rage fits. It's almost the opposite; he's very passive, and he's talking. And every night we're like, "Oh, I wonder what mommy is doing right now." He's like saying these, like you know what mommy is doing right here. You know that she's not breathing. You know what I mean? But he's coming up with these scenarios and hypotheses of where she could be, what has happened to her. And always with this narrative of, you know, she's left us. She made this choice to leave us, you know, which is just nonsense. Hey, this is Scott. Did you know we offer a premium feed of this show that is completely ad-free and there are bonus episodes? Go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus or just click the link in the show notes of any episode to learn more and to sign up. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can sign up right there in the app by clicking Try Free at the top of the episode list. And I hope to see you in the premium feed soon. He says to me around like January 20th, he goes, you know, Collier, I know that it's been really hard on you and on the family when, since mommy decided to leave us. So I'm, I'm thinking that maybe I have a medical convention coming up in Florida. And I think that we should take a father and son trip to Florida, like a bonding trip. So you'll feel better about mommy. I think, we, I think you need a little break from Mansfield, et cetera, et cetera. And I knew right then and there that I wasn't coming back from Florida. Because again, I could see my father's behavior is becoming more and more stressed out. The police are literally coming to our house every night, knocking on the door to talk to him. He's meeting with his lawyer every night at the house. I could tell that like the walls are starting to close around him. And he's probably going in his mind, how are the walls closing around me? I've covered my tracks. I've done all this. And I think he's starting to maybe put two and two together that I'm talking to the police because I'm not saying anything to him. I'm not telling my grandmother anything. I'm only doing this at school, which I felt was my safe place to do all this. So I call Dave Messmore the next day and I tell him, I said, my father said he wants to take me to Florida. And, and I knew at the time it was fishy too, because every year we would go to Florida. We would go to Clearwater Beach, Florida. We would go to these medical conferences, but they were always in the spring because it's spring break. Families are on vacation, you know, for spring break and it's Florida. You can go to Bush Gardens. You can do all these things, right? It's Tampa, outside Tampa. So there's all these things that can happen you know, for families. So I know that it's very weird that. <laughs> You wouldn't really have this happen. Like, you wouldn't have this big medical conference right after Christmas. So, it's all fishy. It's all bad from Jump Street. So, I say to Dave Messmore, my father wants to take me to Florida. And I said, I'm not coming back from Florida. I've been able to swim since I was four years old. I'm going to drown in the Gulf of Mexico. I'm like, I'm not coming back from Florida. And he realizes that too. 
but I don't hear from him for a couple of days. And then I wake up on the morning of January 24th and there are two agents from Child Protective Services. They're in my room. They said, we're getting out of here in 20 minutes. Pack a bag, pack a bag for your sister and you're getting out of here. And I hear all this commotion downstairs and I start packing this bag. I ask them if I can take my dog. They say, no, you can't take your dog. We'll come back and get your dog. Like we're not going to take him right now. We'll come back and get your dog. I never saw my dog again. I packed whatever I could in 20 minutes and, and stuff. And I left with child protective services. As I'm coming downstairs, the entire house is flooded with police officers, men and women in white lab coats, all these contraptions going on. Dave Messmore is there. They're serving a search warrant. My grandmother's apoplectic, you know, search warrants, the whole thing. And then they escort me out of the house cops everywhere, vans. I mean, it's just, it's wild. And they tell me, they're like, oh, you're not going to school today. <laughs> and I'm like, oh yeah. And so I go to, I believe the principal of my school's house. And I knew at that moment that my life was never going to be the same. I mean, I already kind of realized that my life was never going to be the same, you know, leading up to that moment for the last 25 days, 24 days. But that was really like when things were starting to sink in that like it's not everything that I've ever known has been completely just eviscerated. So I go to 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 the principal of my school's house and I, this woman comes in and meets me and she's a caseworker and she introduces herself and she says that she's my caseworker and I don't know what a caseworker is, but I know it's not good. So that night, you know, I had gotten out of there in such a hurry that I didn't have all my asthma stuff. And I had that night the worst asthma attack of my life. And I actually thought I was going to die because I, I was having such trouble breathing. I was just so, such in a bad place. And just, you know, because I knew my whole world was turning upside down and I was allergic to something in the house and it, it was just bad. But I somehow survived through the night. I'm like sleeping in like a chair to prop myself up so I can breathe and that morning we go to the hospital and I remember going in there was a bunch of people in the lobby of the hospital and there was like an honor box, like the newspaper honor boxes. And I remember them grabbing me and sort of drifting me away from the honor box. And then I go into this little room, this little patient room or whatever. And they were taking you to the hospital because of your asthma. Yeah. They're taking me to the hospital because of my asthma and a friend of the family who was a doctor, he was a cardiologist. He, he was in the room and he gave me a, um, a, a shot for, you know, steroids to reduce the inflammation in my lungs. He gave me a breathing treatment and I was like stabilized and I could breathe. And then he says to me, call your Lieutenant Musmore found your mother. And it was like this long drawn out pause. I mean, it probably only lasted a second or two. And I just, is what I wanted to hear. And she said, you know, Lieutenant Messmer found your mother and she was dead. It's really hard to articulate to people what that really feels like. Because in that moment, you have been thinking and fearing the worst for so long, for 25 days now, 26 days, and you know in your heart how it was going to play out, but you never really want to accept that. So this overwhelming sort of relief comes over that you're not crazy, that what you thought really happened did happen, and you were right. And then on the flip side, the overwhelming sadness 
and grief that you go through because what you thought was true was true and what you believed in your heart had happened would really happened. That is something that I'll never forget because you don't want to be right. I wanted them to say so bad. Yeah, they found her in a shopping mall in Toronto, Ontario, where they or she was in California and you know, or she she was in Paris, or like that's what I wanted to really hear. But I already knew it. I knew it, I knew it when I heard everything happen that night of December 31st, 1989, that she was never coming back. But you know, part of you holds out hope that that's not true. Even though you think it and you know it to be true, you don't really want it to be true. No one really wants to be like, oh, my father murdered my mother. My mother was murdered. Nobody really wants that. Like, you don't really want to accept that. They found her buried beneath the basement floor of the house that I found the photographs of in Erie, Pennsylvania. My father had rented a jackhammer. My father had, which I had seen at the house, by the way, my father had rented a jackhammer. My father had, had dug a hole, covered it in concrete, covered it with, uh, repainted everything, covered the floor with green AstroTurf indoor outdoor carpeting that was on our patio as well at the house for months prior to that. And he had, uh, had shelves built over top of it in this basement. And that's where they found her body buried underneath the basement floor. So they only knew about that house because of the picture that you had found. I guess they could they could search real real estate purchase records and yeah, I mean, and, and, and I'm sure they did. You know what I mean? But I found that house, and that was like a clue. But I'm sure at the same time, like they were knowing that. But that house also put the how the the photo that I found with my father's girlfriend, like that, also put that whole thing together as well. Like, oh, she's in this house. So you know, I mean, I'm not privy to what their police work was on the other side, but it all just came together <laughs> after I found that. So he was charged with her murder. Yeah, he wasn't charged straight away. So there was a uh, obviously an arraignment here, um, not an arraignment hearing, but a grand jury. And I testified at the grand jury to secure his indictment. And then he was arraigned on uh, what they call aggravated murder, which is premeditated murder because the murder was premeditated. I, I think a lot of people don't understand that. That my father just didn't kill my mother in a crime of passion. My father planned this out for months and months, bought the house, rented the jackhammer, bought all the, the stuff, bought the tarp that he wrapped my mother's body in. Like all of it was premeditated. So it was aggravated murder, which is premeditated murder. And he was charged with abuse of a corpse and it was a fiasco. And I guess, it, it, you know, having heard, you know, that my mother was indeed dead and all of that. And then, going through that and then testifying at the grand jury. And I remember my, my mother's sister came out. I believe they, she had to come out to identify the body. And, you know, my mother's sister was my godmother. And we had like a little memorial service at the Catholic church in town. And it was weird. It was all very surreal. I was just out of it, but I testified at the grand jury. And then what had happened was my mother's sister told me on the phone that they could not take me in because I looked like my father. They were not willing to do that. You were in temporary foster care at the moment, right? I was just I was just staying at a, a friend's house for a couple of days. I thought I was going to go with family or whatever. And my so father's side of the family was basically like, "You're putting your, you didn't hear what you heard. You know, they're gaslighting me of like, you're, you've put your father in jail. Like your father's arrested because of you. 
you're going to rescind your testimony type thing. So they're disowning me too. So yeah, I was abandoned by both sides of my family and I went into the foster care system. And I stayed there till I was adopted. So the, he pleads, in, in spite of all of this evidence, he still pleads not guilty. He pleads not guilty. And so uh, I ended up, I testified, you know, I was in foster care for, you know, five months before the trial. And I was pretty much isolated because I can't, you know, I couldn't watch television. I couldn't read the newspaper. I couldn't really talk to any friends or anything outside of school. I wasn't supposed to talk about the case, but I was like the chief witness against my father pretty much. I mean, there was other, there were other people, but I was the one that was the insider of when all this is going on and was able to lead the jury into like the history of his, of his abuse and he, and who he was and who my mother was and what all, all of this looked like in his behavior over this time. And I testified for two days at his trial. His trial was almost a month long. Let's listen to some of that courtroom testimony. Will you tell us who you are? I'm Collier Landry Boyle. And then just to make you a little familiar with the courtroom, we have the microphones here. You can just speak up and oh. talk right at the microphone. So you told us who you are. Could you tell us how old you are now? I am 12 years old. So first of all, why don't we tell or take your mother? Can you tell us what you did with your mom? Usually, we like to go shopping together and just um, go out. We watch a lot of movies, and we go to the grocery store together, together and rent movies and stuff like that. But we just have a lot of fun. We go all kinds of different places. Okay, now also drawing your attention here to your uh, father, Dr. John Boyle. Did he spend time with you? Not very much at all. But compared to the time you spent with your mom, would you say you spent maybe how much percent with your dad and how much percent with your mother? 99% with my mother and 1% with my father. Uh, you said you went to bed about 9 o'clock on December 30th. Mm -hmm. Did anything happen during the course of that night that woke you up? I awoke at around 3 to 3.15 um, AM. You know, how do you know it was that time? Because I, as I awoke, I looked at the clock and it said it was between 3 and 3.15 AM. Okay, now, you woke at that time. Is there any reason why you woke up rather than just stay there and sleep? Because I heard a scream coming from my sister. The immediate thought I had was something was wrong with my mother. And about a little while later, maybe about three minutes, maybe, I heard a thud. A little. Okay, could you describe this sound for okay. us? Okay, it was about this loud. And then about a minute and a half later, I heard, or I mean half a minute later, I heard um, a thud like this, even louder. And at that time, I was petrified. I mean, I was just scared. All right. Now, did you get up at that time to investigate what had happened? No, I did not. And could you tell the jury why you didn't? Because I was extremely afraid of my father, and I always have. Okay, now, did there come a time that you got up next morning and looked for your mother? Yes, it was around 8.30 in the morning, and I got up and I ran immediately to my mother's room, and I noticed the covers were pulled back like a body had been taken out. It's not the normal way my mother would get out of bed and so I went downstairs and I said where's my mother to my father and he said well mommy took a little vacation Collier and then I just I, I, I didn't know what to say I just panicked 
And so I said, and he said she'll be back in a few days, and then she just left. When was the last time you spoke with your mother? It was around the night of um, December 30th. Well, right before you went to bed? Yes. And that was the last time you really saw your mother, is that correct? Yes. When I first watched that, I thought, this is not a 12-year-old kid. I mean, you were talking like you were confident, you were composed, very convincing. Um, did the lawyers tell you how to do that? No, I mean, here's the thing is I, I yeah. and there's so many people like as my story gets more and more public and so many people say, oh, he's, he's lying. He's making this up. He didn't know. He didn't hear anything. He didn't do that. They told him what to say. My father for years, you know, was still says I was coached through my testimony and they told me what to say and all this. The thing that people don't understand is when you're telling the truth, it is very easy to remember. <laughs> the truth is the easiest thing to remember. So of course it sounds, you know, it sounds confident because I'm telling the truth. I'm not making anything up. If I was making it up, first of all, for anyone that's ever testified at a trial, let alone the trial of your father murdering your mother, let alone testifying at a trial when you're a minor in front of a courtroom full of people. It's pretty scary. And TV cameras as well. And TV cameras. And TV, exactly. And TV cameras. It's pretty intimidating. It's pretty scary. So the fact that I could remember some sort of rehearsed story is utterly fanciful. And I was, you know, I was angry at my father because he did the unspeakable thing. He had no, he had a reason to kill my mother. He had no reason he could have gone and lived his life with his girlfriend and that would have been it, you know? Which is what he was telling me he was going to do for the last six months, because he's found this better family than we than we are, and he's going to go and make sure that our lives are a living hell and all of that. He had no reason to do what he would do. He was going to make money. He was making money. He was all these things. And you know, when I was watching this, your dad in court, in hearing you testify, he seems to have no emotion or response to anything. He was taking notes, but no response to what you were saying. None whatsoever. In fact, he wouldn't even look me in the eye. He knows what he did. He's not stupid. My father's a very intelligent man. I just, you know, there's obviously narcissistic personality disorder. There's psychopathy involved in this because I think a lot of people don't understand it. I'm look, I'm not a clinician. I don't, <laughs> I'm not a doctor. I don't diagnose. I just know what it's like to interact with him and to confront him. But you know, he very firmly believed that he would that he could lie his way through this. He'd been lying his entire life. And he underestimated your loyalty to your mother, it sounds like. That that's for sure. He definitely underestimated my loyalty to my mother. Absolutely. So he was convicted. He was convicted by a jury of his peers. He got twenty one and a half years with parole. But you know, for the potential of parole. But my father is still incarcerated to this day. In fact, he just turned 80 a few weeks ago. How long has he been in now? 33 years. Almost 33 years. His sentence, How long did you say his sentence was? 21 and a half years, but you have to be eligible for parole. So the first time he was up for parole, he was um, denied. And then he was up for parole again in 2021 or 2020 and uh, also got denied parole. But even if I, I'm not sure I understand this. If he was sentenced to 21 and a half years, even if he's not eligible for parole, doesn't he get out when that sentence is over? 
No, no, because you have to be you have to be paroled to be let out. So it's really a life sentence with possibility of parole. It's really a life sentence so with yeah, in, in a lot of ways it is because he's on what's called and he explained this to me years ago, but he's on what's called old law, which old law you have to appear before a parole board and they have to deem you fit to to rejoin society. In new law, it, like nowadays, if you get convicted of something like that, it's either, okay, we're giving you a life sentence. We're giving you 25 years. So let's say they give you 25 years on one day past 25 years. You're out. Have a nice day. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it, it, it's very odd. You know, it, it, the, the justice system has evolved a lot since my father's incarceration. Does Ohio have capital punishment? Uh, they did have capital punishment. I don't think at the time they did, or I don't think that they, they were going to seek capital punishment against my father. I mean, because it being premeditated and everything, it seems like that would that would be a case that would qualify if it was in effect. I would think so. I mean, I think that the, the reason why they didn't pursue a death penalty is because there was, um, because my father, uh, you know, I have a, I have a half sister that was born 12 days before my father was arrested. You know, his girlfriend, unbeknownst to me, was pregnant at the time. So I have a half sister. And then obviously, so there's two natural children that he has. Then there's an adopted child, right? Six months before the murder. So you have this whole, these other extenuating circumstances that surround this whole thing. So yeah, I would think that, I think that he didn't get the death penalty because of that. In spite of all of that evidence and the fact that he was convicted and that he went to all this trouble to bury her, does your grandmother still think that he's innocent or has she stated anything publicly about what she thinks really happened? No, my grandmother was, uh, you know, stood by him till the end. I became very estranged from my family because they didn't want anything to do with me. (laughs) And it was very, just all of it was so weird. I, you know, I and I had no relationship with my family hardly at all. It was very, very, and a relationship with my father as well. I mean, I maintained a relationship with my father for decades, but I saw my grandmother before she passed away because I would go visit her. She lived up in like Youngstown, Ohio, and I would drive up there and see her. And she, um, I remember she said something to me one time. She and she was she was older and she was you know in and out of like. Yeah, you know, she was right before she passed away. And she said, we were making pizzelles in her kitchen. She said to me, she goes, my Jackie, what a waste of talent. So when she told me that, like I knew that she knew what he did. Even my father's and my mother's family, like not wanting to do anything with me, like they had their own trauma. My father had molested their two daughters a year before all of this happened under the guise of giving them physicals. And so he was supposed to be arrested for that in Baltimore and they never, they couldn't get anything to stick on him. So it was, there was a lot of stuff that had happened and there was a lot of dynamics in my family that I didn't realize existed until many years later, until well after the trial, until I was like an adult that I I started finding these things out. I still find things out, which is crazy to me. And you've kept in touch with him. You've written him letters over these decades while he's been incarcerated. Yeah. And I, I would write letters to him. I would talk to him on the phone. I would go visit him. I probably visited my father hundreds of times in prison. You know, I wanted to always do something with this story because I didn't want it to be 
something that defines me. And it's weird because now I'm, I talk about it so much and I have the podcast and I have, you know, I made the film and things like that. And I continue to do this work, right? <laughs> it's like become, you know, something else. But I, you know, I, I left my small town of Mansfield, Ohio. I moved to Los Angeles. I became a filmmaker. I learned music videos and, and feature films and short films and all these things and commercials and yada, yada. I worked as a cinematographer, filmmaker, and then I got into finally being in a place where I was like, okay, I really want to tell the story because it was always something I wanted to do, but I learned the craft of filmmaking because I wanted to be able to tell the story. And I wanted to do something that would honor my mother, that would bring some sort of closure to this. And I also really wanted to find out why my father murdered my mother because that was the lingering question with me. It's like, why would he do this? So I ended up making a film called A Murder in Mansfield, directed by two-time Oscar winner Barbara Koppel. And I actually was in the film. I wasn't necessarily supposed to be from the start. And it was really going to be a pilot for a television series about the consequences of violence and, and that whole thing. And it ended up being becoming this whole thing. And then I started a podcast after that because, you know, we, we you know, I traveled around the world with the film and I did a Ted talk and speaking and all these wonderful things. And, you know, I left the small town to get away from all of this. And then I sort of came full circle back into it. Do you see that as kind of part of your healing process? I've, well, I, I feel that like, you know, for nobody really knew my story out here in Los Angeles. Like nobody knew who I was because I wanted to leave this town and, and make a life for myself. And I spent 15 years doing that, you know, until I finally got ready to really tell the story. So, and I was confident in that, like, okay. But it was this nagging thing that I always wanted to put to bed. I, I, I was like, I need to do something positive with this experience and then share this experience with the world. Yeah. And I just recently, I watched that documentary and it's amazing. And anybody can watch it and see 12-year-old Collier on the witness stand. And I'll, we'll have a link to that so they can, they can watch that. I, had, I, wanted, I wanted to ask you one question about a scene in that film. Yeah. You went back to visit your childhood home where all this happened. And obviously yep. someone else was living there now. And did they know the history of that house when they bought it? Oh yeah. Well, they, they, somebody else had bought it. They, they were renting it, but uh, yeah, they do. I mean, everyone knows, everyone knows. And uh, I didn't even want to go up there and ask them that, but they just go up there, have them have, go up there and knock on the door and just be your charming self. Call here and talk to them. And we did. And they were very gracious with us. They were lovely people to talk with you and lovely people. They filled such a how the, the home with love and it was really wonderful. It was really a, a nice moment, but it was also very surreal. I felt, you know, going through the house at the time, I thought <laughs> it just seemed so small to me. <laughs> you know, when you're a kid, it feels, feel like, oh, everything's so big and this, that, and the other. It felt very small to me. But it was a really nice moment to see somebody filling that space with love. Because there was so much love in that house. There were a lot of good memories. It just didn't end so well. And there are a lot more details in that film, which people can watch and, and see all that, including your modern-day confrontation with your father when you visited him in prison and asked him point-blank, about the murder. That was a very interesting yeah. conversation. Which again, you know, again, I had never ever asked him that. 
that was a point blank because my father, you know, he participated in the film because he thought I was making a film to help him get out of prison. Again, all about him, right? All about him. And I never told him that. But he's got hours all day, every day to think maybe that's what's going to happen. Yeah. And a lot of people also say to me, I remember traveling, you know, I was, and I was speaking and traveling with the film and somebody came up to me at the end, you know, they'll, they'll meet and greet in line and they said, God, Collier, I'm so glad your father was able to tell you what really happened and now you can have closure. You know, that he told you the truth about what happened. Like, like that, because he essentially says the murder was an accident. And I'm just looking at you because because he was a fan of my father's. He had worked at the prison and he was, and I'm just looking at him going, no, that's not what happened. <laughs> like my father's not telling me the truth. Even after all that's happened, he's still able to convince some people a hundred percent. He's that good. And that's how, that's the thing with the psychopathy and with people who have narcissistic personality disorder, all these things like this is how these people are. They think they're really believable and people do believe them and defend them too, which is just wild to me. Well, talk about what you're doing today. You mentioned a podcast and you actually started an, a new podcast recently. Yeah. Yeah. So I host a podcast and a YouTube channel, which is uh, my podcast is called Moving Past Trauma. I'm about you know, 80, 90 episodes out now. It was originally called Moving Past Murder. I changed it to trauma because it's a little easier for people to digest. It tells my story of, of who I am, where I came from. And then I also talk about other true crime cases. I also interview a lot of people in true crime and also people that are not in the true crime world that have gone through extraordinary circumstances and come out the other side like myself. You know, I share a lot of things and also my journey of interviewing people that were involved in my in the case. Let, I read letters from my father to to show what psychopathy and narcissism and these things look like to people. I mean, I have over 400 letters from my father and I share some of them in the podcast. And then I do another, uh, I do this also on YouTube. I have a YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com forward slash Collier Landry. And uh, I have a new podcast I started with Tara Newell, who your audience may or may not know from the show and podcast Dirty John. She's the girl that took the life of Dirty John Meehan in self-defense. And we do a podcast together called Survivor Squad, which just launched a couple of weeks ago. So you can check that on out wherever you get your podcast from Apple, Spotify, uh, Moving Past Trauma is on those platforms as well. And it's also on YouTube, like I said. And you know, you can get my film through my store, uh, callyourlander.com forward slash store. Uh, you can get the film of Murder in Mansfield. You can also find it on Hulu. Uh, it's on Discovery Plus. It's on um, uh, Amazon Prime Video. You can buy it there too. But or you can purchase it through my store, which helps support myself in the program. You can find me on Patreon too. I got a lot of content on Patreon and all these things and letters from my father and things that I share. And yeah, and you're on you you're on Instagram, of course. You got a huge following on TikTok, and you got a big YouTube I do, channel. I do. So, I yeah, you're you're everywhere. Yeah, YouTube's growing. I'm I'm really trying to grow the channel. So yeah, I love all the subscribers and everybody to check me out. I do get live episodes. All right, and we'll have links to all that in the show notes. And I have to ask this question. Sure. Do you know what happened to your dog? So that's an interesting thing. So this is. And if if it's a bad ending, I'm going to have to edit this out because my listeners are huge dog lovers. No, so it's actually not. So that was one of. I'm going to try not to cry because this is really emotional for me. So I never saw my dog again. And I always wondered what happened to him. And. When I was screening the film, so I travel around the world with the film at all these film festivals. We were in like almost 60 film festivals. And I did screenings back home in Ohio in Mansfield. In the same theater my mother would take me to as a child, 
where uh, she would volunteer behind the soda stand and all this stuff, right? We did two back to back, two two screenings over two days. And on the second day, and it was like a hundred some degrees outside. It was de- you know middle of summer. And I remember before the show started, there was this woman who I could see on the other side of the theater, and she looked like she was trying to get my attention, but then she didn't come up and talk to me because everybody's flooding me, asking me questions. And so we're watching the film, and in the middle of the film, halfway through, the projector stops. The film just cuts out. And I fly upstairs, and I'm like, "Oh, the ball blew!" And I'm, you know, it's so hot there. There's the projector room. Eventually, the projector overheated, so we stopped down. And during that forced intermission, this woman who was never going to talk to me. She comes up to me and she goes, "Hi, Collier. I'm so and so." And I said, "Oh, hi. How are you?" And she's like, "I was trying to get your attention earlier, but I just uh, you, you had a lot of people around you." And I said, "Oh, that's no problem." I said, "What's going on?" She goes, "Did you have a wired hair fox terrier?" And I said, and I start to get a little emotional. And I said, "Yeah, why?" And she goes, "I think we had your dog." Because there was a woman who who helped your mom clean the house that she had taken the dog temporarily, and she brought the dog to us. And we we always she that's what she said, but we weren't a hundred percent sure that it was your dog. And I just like I'm sorry, you know, getting all teary eyed. And she says, she goes, I grew up on a farm in the middle of the country, and we had horses, we had pigs. That dog had the best life. He lived a long life. He lived till he was like, we think we were like 14, 15. He would sleep with the pigs in the little stall. They were like the best friends. He always would run around and, and everyone loved him. He was such a sweet dog. We, we loved him so much. And I want you to know that we gave him the best life. And I'm like, ah, just crying and just, ah. It's one of those things that like, when you, when you think about like doing this and getting your story out and talking about this and, and you know, your process and your journey of healing and what that looks like, that's one of those moments that you go, that, that was worth it. Like that, like getting those close, that closure, you know, because I think everybody thinks that, you know, you make a movie, you make a documentary, you make all this money. No, you don't, you don't get anything. It's I making a documentary is not, it's not a money making thing that happens. It's just, you're doing something for, for yourself. And, you know, for me, it was about this journey of closure and finding answers and, and coming to terms with what I'm doing and what my life looks like and, and things of that nature, right? And doing something with the story. But that was one of those moments that's like, ah, oh, this is what I needed. Like, and I knew that my mother's spirit had shut that projector down at that moment. So that moment can happen because I never would have known what had happened to my dog. Cause I always feared the worst, right? And just to know that he had such a great life and was adopted by a family that really loved him and took care of him, that made me really happy. And that's like, oh, this is why you do this. This is great. Collier and I are in a podcast mastermind group together. So I've gotten to know him pretty well over the past several months. He's a great guy. And the film he made about his story is really incredible. You can find links to all of his stuff in the show notes for this episode at whatwasthatlike.com slash 145. Now, you already know you're my favorite podcast listener. And if you ever question whether or not I'm looking out for you, how about that question about his dog at the end of our conversation? I knew you'd be wondering about that part of the story. You know I got your back. And if you like this episode, there's another one you might enjoy where I talked to my guest, Jamie. She was in a courtroom for a murder trial as well. 
except her story is about what it's like to be on the jury. When the prosecutor starts asking more in-depth questions to find out if they want to keep you on the jury or not, that's when we kind of had a clue as to what this trial would be about. She started act asking, you know, have you or anybody in your immediate family struggled with alcoholism? Uh, have you ever been um, the victim of domestic abuse? Have you ever been accused or charged with domestic abuse? So you could get a sense that there was something to do with alcohol and domestic violence that were going to come out in this trial. That episode is number 104, titled, Jamie Was a Juror in a Murder Trial. And you probably already know this, but I'm always on the lookout for guests with stories to feature here on the podcast. It doesn't have to be as tragic as your father murdering your mother, just something really unusual that happened to you. We even do happy stories here sometimes, you know? Sometimes someone will send me a story and they'll include a message like, I've been listening to the podcast for a long time, and I've thought about sending in my story, but I wasn't sure if it would work for the podcast. Or I didn't know if it was really unusual enough. And in some cases, their story was perfect for the podcast. So if you're not sure, send it in, let me evaluate it. And what happens sometimes is that someone will send in their story, and even though it might not work as a full episode, it might be a perfect fit as a listener story. But we can never really know until you take that first step and tell me what happened. And you can do that right from the website. Just go to whatwasthatlike.com and click where it says Your Story. Just fill out that form and I'll check it out and see about making it happen. Graphics for this episode were created by Bob Bretz. Full episode transcription was created by James Lye. And if you need those services, contact me and I'll put you in touch with either one of them because they both do great work. And speaking of listener stories, here we are with this one. This is how we end every episode with a 5 to 10 minute story sent in by a listener. The listener stories are a popular segment for each episode and you know why? Because everyone loves hearing a good story. This one is about a scary situation on a mountain. Stay safe, and I'll see you back here in two weeks. Hi, I'm Christy, and this is my family's experience. In the summer of 2006, my husband and I and two of our three daughters went to a family ranch resort, which was adjacent to Zion National Park in southern Utah. Our middle daughter was 20, and our youngest daughter was 11. My husband was a cowboy, a team roper, and had lived on a ranch, so this was right up his alley. We stayed in one of the rustic cabins, ate cowboy meals, and signed ourselves up for horseback riding, zip lining, shooting, etc. My husband had been shooting guns most of his life, and he was particularly excited about this excursion because now his family members would have the chance to shoot. At the appointed time, we climbed into a big van along with another family that we did not know. Our driver was a young man about the age of 19 who went by his camp name of Potato. There was a lot of chatter amongst riders in the van as we headed up a narrow road along the side of a mountain with a steep canyon below. It was sunny and warm, and all of us were dressed for a hot summer day. Potato pulled into a cleared area where there was a small outbuilding, and we all got out of the van. He grabbed the loaded shotguns and handed them out. There wasn't a thing said about safety, where anyone should stand or not walk, 
There were some young kids, and nothing was mentioned about how to fold the shotgun and where not to point it. It made me terribly nervous, and I made certain that our 11-year-old was either with me or my husband. We were shooting skeet, and before long, a sudden storm hit, and the rain began. This is not necessarily unusual for southern Utah, but we had not been forewarned and were not prepared for a downpour. After about five or ten minutes, when the rain was then coming down in buckets, Potato told us to go wait it out in the little outbuilding. So the two families piled in there with massive amounts of heavy mud on our shoes. After a while, when it appeared that the storm was not going to let up, Potato instructed us to get back in the van for the trip down the mountain. My husband sat in the front passenger seat, the other family adults in the next row. I was seated between each of my daughters on the next row, and the children from the other family were on the back row. As Potato started to turn the van toward the road, it was sliding all over the place. This soil had a very high clay content and, when wet, was extremely heavy and slick. As Potato drove, the van slid everywhere, worse than my experiences of driving in snow, and he continued to pick up speed. We would slide right next to the edge of the cliff, and at one point, the van spun 180 degrees, coming to a stop headfirst into a tree on the very edge of the cliff. The other adults were telling him to slow down, but instead he went faster and faster. There was a lot of talking, yelling, singing going on as we tried to cope with the fear we felt that we might very well go off the side of this mountain. My daughter to my left was praying aloud. My younger daughter to my right was crying. When I feel that kind of fear, I get very, very quiet so I can focus and concentrate on keeping myself together. The kids behind us were very loudly singing a church hymn, The Spirit of God Like a Fire is Burning. It was fearful chaos in that van. I finally yelled up to Potato to slow down, saying if he didn't, I was going to get out. I made eye contact with my husband, and he seemed to be just as calm and relaxed as could be. With all the sliding and near misses of going over the edge, we arrived back at the resort. Potato explained that because of the type of soil on the road, the only way he could keep the van moving was to speed up so that the mud would fly off the tires. Otherwise, they would cause the van to be completely stuck in the mud. I was so frightened and so angry that I really didn't care about his explanation. He had put me and my family and another family in danger, and I was determined to let someone know about it. You don't go to a family resort thinking that you're going to fly off a cliff and die. I asked my husband why he was so calm during all of it, and he replied, I knew everything was going to be okay. We were signed up for another activity upon our return, but we were all covered in that thick and heavy mud. I was in no mood to just walk off and have fun. I was still shaking with fear and anger. I eventually calmed down enough to watch the girls on the zip line, but I was going to have a very hard time enjoying myself for the rest of our stay. I later ran into the family that had been in the van with us, and they told me that they had taken their quad up the mountain road, and they showed me pictures of the van's tracks stopping right at the edge of the cliff. It was horrifying proof of us nearly flying off the edge to our deaths. Then later in the evening, we were in the pool when the lightning struck near us. Out we came. We were actually looking forward to our trip home. 
Upon our return, I wrote a long, detailed letter to both the resort manager and the owner. I wanted them to understand not only how dangerous it was as we slid down that mountain, but why hadn't there been any safety rules surrounding the shooting excursion? I let them know just how frightened we had all been and felt like they needed to make some changes if this was going to be a safe and pleasant experience for others. Rather than call or email me about it, they actually drove to our home, which was four hours away. They sat in my living room and apologized for what had happened and then proceeded to outline the changes that they had already made and the changes that were in the works. They had made safety rules regarding the shooting excursion and had plans for putting rock on the road up the mountain. But in the meantime, the minute the rain starts, the van drivers are to get everyone in the van and down the mountain before it gets dangerous. They invited us to come stay again at their expense. I honestly feel a little shaky even recounting this. Other than some pretty harrowing medical experiences, this was the closest I'd ever come to losing my life. The thought of that van filled with 11 people careening off the side of the mountain and smashing hundreds of feet in the canyon below was just too much to consider. We never did make a return visit, not because we didn't want to, but it just never worked in our schedules.